Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Joseph Gerson. Dr. Joseph Gerson is just heading off to an anti-NATO event in Poland and has just authored an article called Imperial NATO Before and After Brexit. Gerson is Director of Programs for the American Friends Service Committee's Northeast Region and Director of AFSC's Peace and Economic Security Program. He focuses on preventing nuclear war and achieving nuclear weapons abolition, education and organizing for peaceful and just alternatives to U.S.-led militarization of the Asia-Pacific, and prevention of U.S. wars, focusing most recently on NATO, Ukraine, and Iraq. His books include Empire and the Bomb, How the U.S. Uses Nuclear Weapons to Dominate the World, and The Sun Never Sets, Confronting the Network of U.S. Foreign Military Bases. Joseph Gerson, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Uh, great to have you on here. Uh, NATO and Brexit. Do, does Brexit actually uh, impact NATO in any way? Yeah, I think, you know, the, there have been two forces that have essentially held Europe together. And one has been um, uh, the European Union, which, you know, now is in, we have the specter of, of this possible dissolution. Uh, and the other is NATO, which has been holding it together really on, on more of a coercive basis. And I think what we're going to see in the coming uh, year or more is going to be increased focus by uh, U.S. And, and European elites uh, on on NATO uh, as essentially their fallback against the, the, the problems within the European Union. It's interesting you refer to NATO as holding Europe together. I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I just read a, a book that was promoted by the Stop the War Coalition in England about the European Union as a as a force for peace, as, as having held Europe together and prevented intra-European wars and facilitated peace in Northern Ireland and Northern Spain and so forth. Is, is, does NATO have some sort of a of a role in terms of uniting European nations and, and preventing wars between them? Well, you know, I, I, preventing wars is a is a open question here. I mean, you've got the situation in Ukraine, you know, which was in fact in large measure created by the expansion of NATO to to Russia's borders. Uh, you know, but it, it's it's created an integration of uh, European uh, military forces. Uh, and you know the kind of the militarist uh, militarist elite. Uh, so it, it, to that degree, it has uh, you know, sort of the um, military side of of, of 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 the unity, as opposed to the more free flowing uh, democratic and, and economic. So you have, for example, within NATO now Poland, which is where the um, the summit is going to take place. Uh, and it's being ruled by an uh, extreme right-wing nationalist government, uh, which has been taking apart uh, what, what they had of, of uh, Polish democracy, uh, stacking its Supreme Court, uh, making it very difficult for the Supreme Court in any event to make any rulings, and now an assault on the on the media, uh, so that uh, you know, really you, you can't have a, a free flow of discussion, debate, or or news about what's really happening. So in that way, you've got a situation where NATO has functioned to reinforce right-wing forces. You also have, I mean, similarly, uh, the role of, of NATO in our, our presence 
in uh, determining the outcome of elections earlier in France and in Italy uh, with a little bit of Kissinger manipulation uh, back there in the 70s. Yeah, so part of holding Europe together and exporting war from Europe uh, to elsewhere. Uh, you mentioned a summit. We're recording this now on July 6th. You're about to get on an airplane. By the time it airs, uh, this will have happened. But what is what is happening in Poland, both in terms of NATO and in terms of opposition to NATO? Yeah, well, on the on the side of, of NATO itself, uh, what you're going to see is a, a reaffirmation of its uh, nuclear doctrines. Uh, you're going to see uh, a, a, a consolidation of a decision to base more forces uh, in in Eastern Europe. Uh, the movement of um, uh, the center of NATO uh, east toward Russia, uh, with the idea of, of reinforcing a hub for NATO uh, in uh, uh, in Poland. Uh, you're going to see demands from the United States for increased military uh, spending. Uh, and essentially moving toward you know toward a higher higher war footing. Uh, on the other side, there is going to be an international conference, uh, a counter summit conference, which will bring together uh, leading peace figures and and scholars uh, from across Europe and a couple from the United States, uh, and a demonstration uh, in the streets, which which will be interesting. I have to say, um, we'll see. I hope I hope the government will allow it to uh, to to go forward. Uh, but it will provide an opportunity for us to, uh, if you will, deepen understanding of what NATO really is uh, and to uh, build alternatives with a focus on the idea of the concept of common security, which is the, basically the, the paradigm uh, on which the, the Cold War itself was ended. And we've moved away from, from the idea of, of common security and uh, toward the you know, kind of triumphalist vision of, of U.S. dominance. Yeah, and and I guess also by the time this airs, there will have been uh, simultaneous NATO protests of of some magnitude in New York and in Northern California. Is that right? Yes, that's that's uh, that's what I'm reading. And, and how how do you think awareness of and opposition to NATO in in the U.S. compares to that in Europe? It seems to me <laughs> there there's much greater uh, both awareness of what in the world's going on and. Uh, and visible opposition to NATO in Europe. Yeah, so it's, it's a day-for-night comparison. I mean, for Europeans, NATO has been uh, present in the form of, of especially U.S. military occupation now for the better part of 70 years. Uh, it's it's the it's been the, the focal point of uh, militarization in the region and of anti-militarist struggles. Uh, here in the United States, I think you know very few people know much about NATO, uh, you know, the, the propaganda that it was there to protect us from the Soviet Union during the Cold War, you know, still, still lingers. Uh, and I think one of the important things and one of the ways, reasons I appreciate uh, this program and interview uh, is, you know, the, the, the summit provides us with an opportunity to be educating people in the United States, uh, to be going deeper to understand uh, its, its roles in, in reinforcing not only U.S. control of Europe, uh, but, but U.S. global domination. And, in my article, I made reference to uh, former National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski and how he understood NATO, uh, as well as other, other alliances. Uh, and it also helps us to to both be talking about uh, the, the nuclear roles of uh, of NATO uh, and to talk about common security alternatives. As our country is increasingly militarized and we're facing increasing dangers with tensions both with Russia and China, I think it's just critically important for people to 
begin understanding what common security is, to understand how it ended the Cold War before the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, it's the idea that, that one nation can't be secure if, if uh, its enemy or rival is insecure by what it does, and you know, the need to, to do negotiations that respect the, the needs and interests of, of all sides. NATO, NATO was not part of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, is that correct? Well, you, know, you had, you had it, it provided the foundation for winning um, uh, British and, and French and other European German uh, role, with, uh, with, especially with Afghanistan, but, but also Iraq. And you had a situation where, you know, just to go back and to help educate your audience, uh, when the Berlin Wall fell, uh, there were negotiations between the United States and, uh, and, and, and the Soviet Union as to on what basis uh, Germany would be reunited. Uh, and Gorbachev, then the head of the uh, Soviet Union, agreed that Germany could be reunited on Western terms uh, on the condition that NATO didn't move an inch closer uh, to, to the Soviet Union or Russia. And from a Russian perspective, they have... Uh, the, the you know the, the the deep historical experience and memory of of absolutely devastating invasions from the West, Napoleon, the Kaiser, and, and Hitler. So this was the agreement, uh, and the United States then, beginning with with Bill Clinton, uh, began moving uh, NATO to 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 Russia's uh, borders. And so while on the one hand this this helps to consolidate U.S. power uh, on the Eurasian continent, uh, the other and the other element here is that, as Don Rumsfeld said in the run-up to the Iraq War, it allowed the United States to play divide and conquer. So in his terms, uh, the United States could play uh, uh, old Europe, uh, rather, new, I'm sorry, could play new Europe, which is to say Eastern Europe, uh, against old Europe in order to win old Europe's involvement in the wars. So you know, that was part of the lever that the U.S. played in order to get especially French and British involvement in the war. Yes, but some some of the wars have more straightforwardly uh, involved NATO from the start, including I'm thinking Afghanistan and mm. Libya and back in the day Yugoslavia. I mean, what uh, what is the list of uh, of foreign expeditions that that NATO has been on? Well, you've got you've got those that you have listed, uh, but then you have the the role of NATO in providing. Uh, legitimacy for U.S. bases across Europe. So, for example, now, AFRICOM, which is involved in, in daily warfare in Africa, is based at the Ramstein base in, uh, in Germany. Uh, so you, you have this other, this other uh, function role. You have the use of, of U.S. bases across the region to reinforce uh, the U.S. You know, subversion in wars in the Middle East, you know, the reinforcing U.S. hegemony in, in the region, you know, really go back to 1949 or so. Uh, and you, you have, you know, the deployment of, of U.S. nuclear weapons there that have been used consistently uh, to reinforce U.S. Middle East hegemony. I mean, most, most people think that the last time nuclear weapons were used was, was Nagasaki in 1945. Uh, but in reality, and as, as Dan Ellsberg uh, teaches us, uh, you know, the U.S. weapons have been used time and again during crises and um, uh, and wars in the way that a robber, uh, armed robber, points a gun at someone's head, whether or not he pulls the trigger, the gun's still been used. And so you've had U.S. nuclear alerts and the threats of, of U.S. first strike uh, really going back to 1946 uh, before 
uh, Russia even had a nuclear weapon, uh, but consistently on through. And, and recall that uh, in the negotiations with Iran, uh, both uh, Bush the Lesser and, uh, and Obama uh, said, look, all options are on the table. Uh, when a nuclear power says all options are on the table, that, that includes nuclear. And a major part of that force are, are, are weapons and uh, ships and so on uh, based in, in Europe. Yeah, and and so we now have, as you mentioned, NATO expanding uh, up to Russia's border, uh, pushing for some sort of uh, partial membership for Ukraine and Georgia as well, um, so-called missile defense bases in Romania and under construction there in, in Poland and military exercises and the coup in Ukraine and and more new nukes in, into Europe. I mean, talk about some of these uh, exercises and, and expansions and how they look from, from Russia's point of view. Right. So, I mean, one way to, to help people understand it is imagine, you know, in northern Mexico, maybe 10 miles or so from, from the U.S. border in Texas, uh, Russia is uh, conducting military exercises with tens of thousands of, of troops, uh, is putting in the most modern uh, weapon systems that there are, uh, has it all reinforced with its uh, nuclear, uh, first-strike nuclear threats, uh, and you begin to understand that, that they feel besieged, which is not to be an apologist for, for Putin uh, or, or his government, uh, but to appreciate that, uh, you know, look, the U.S. The US uh, uh, economy is, what, 15 times larger uh, than, uh, than the Russians. So you have a situation in which you've got, uh, you know, US, basically a new U.S. naval fleet uh, in in the Black Sea, which you, know, you could say is sort of the equivalent of of the Caribbean, uh, where Russia to be there, uh, you have these these massive uh, military exercises. You've got uh, air air and, and naval operations up in the Baltic, uh, so you have a situation in which you know Russia has its own its own degree of pride, its own fears, uh, and so they're attempting to meet this in, in kind, uh, and so you have uh, increasingly dangerous. Um, confrontations uh, in the midst of, of, of exercises on both sides. So as, as Michael Clare has written, and there's a, a trilateral uh, group of scholars and, and security analysts uh, called the um, Back from the Brink uh, study group, uh, who are saying, look, you know, there's the day, what happens if a frightened or overamped uh, U.S. or Polish or uh, Russian soldier in the middle of one of these uh, uh, intense confrontations, decides he's had enough or is just too frightened and uh, pushes the button on the missile he's got that takes down uh, the the uh, warplane from the other side. Uh, well, then you're into the thick of it uh, with the possibility of escalation uh, all the way up to the impossible and uh, the unimaginable, not uh, yeah. that we're impossible. And you have a situation which in many ways is comparable to the years leading up to, to World War I. So people, a number of people make the analogy of a new Cold War, uh, but I think it's better understood to be something like 1912 or 1913 in terms of the, 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 the structural dynamics that are going on uh, and, and the dangers that a, an incident uh, could, could lead to, to just an unimaginable crisis. Yeah, although with nuclear weapons, unlike World War One. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The uh, the the other thing I notice is how these incidents of Russian planes flying near U.S. planes uh, in the Baltic or the Black Sea are are described. I mean, I think 
if if Russia had its uh, ships in the Caribbean or off the coast of Florida and a U.S. plane were to fly somewhere near a Russian plane and Russia were to describe that as aggression against Russia, that would sound a little that would sound a little bit silly to us, wouldn't it? Yeah, you know, I mean, to, you know, just to say there've been some excesses on the Russian side too. I mean, you had a situation where where one of their warplanes essentially did somersaults, uh, you know, what within twenty yards of a of a U.S. warship. Uh, so right, you know, but not you're, within you're, you're, but not within any number of miles of the U.S. coast. Rather, of course, rather of near course, Russia. Of course, <laughs> I mean the reality is the Russians are, are, you know, the Russians are sending their 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 ships you know, into other countries' waters. I mean they've been doing it with Sweden. They've been doing it. They did that throughout the Cold War, and you've had some some Russian ships in the neighborhood of Britain. So so I think I think we we need to say look the the, the principal problem here is is the United States and NATO. Uh, Russia is acting, uh, if you will, largely defensively, uh, but in ways that can be provocative too. For sure. Uh, in, in this situation, it points to, I think, the the necessity, the urgency, of moving toward toward common security diplomacy to uh, look at, you know, step back from the brink as as the study has it, uh, and and find ways that we can coexist and and uh, and build the more peaceful relations and and, and not be diverting trillions of dollars away from our, our societies, which so badly need investment. Yeah. When you say the the United States and NATO, I, I mean, is NATO a tool of the United States? Or, or is oh, absolutely. It, a, it, it has been from the beginning. It's, it's not and, some I mean, sort of look at, coalition you know, of equals. Who's the supreme military commander? It's always a U.S. general, uh, supreme commander of, of NATO. And the U.S. has a predominant role in, in, in selecting who's going to be the uh, NATO general secretary is always somebody from Europe, but but um, has to has to meet U.S. approval. Um, you know, and with the the military presence, uh, which is principally principally uh, U.S. across Europe. I mean, it, it's it's a U.S. alliance. It, it also seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, a, a tool that facilitates U.S. militarism in a number of ways. In in one way, it takes uh, various atrocities out from under congressional oversight, were Congress to consider engaging in such activity, uh, because the, they're uh, labeled, you know, NATO crimes in Afghanistan rather than U.S. crimes in Afghanistan. Um, but it also seems I just, as we're, we're recording this on the day that the Chilcot Inquiry Report mm-hmm. came out in Britain, and I'm reading through there and seeing that that the British decided when they couldn't get a UN authorization to attack Iraq, they would go with the Kosovo method, meaning ignore Iraq, but establish some sort of coalition of more than one country and pretend that that somehow legalized it and just go ahead without the UN. Uh, Does NATO serve these sorts of purposes for you? Absolutely. You know, it was interesting, back in 1999, after the war against Serbia, a guy named Michael Glennon, who teaches at Tufts University, uh, had a very interesting article in in Foreign Affairs, you know, the Journal of the, um, you know, of the of the liberal elite, and and this is what he wrote. He wrote, with little discussion and less fanfare, uh, the United States has effectively abandoned the old UN Charter rules that strictly limit international intervention in local conflicts, in favor of a vague new system that is much more tolerant of military intervention but has few hard and fast rules. So as we were discussing before, uh, this then serves as the foundation, say, for the overthrow of the Gaddafi government in, in Libya, uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and, and on it goes. Uh, so 
you know, while while we have, I mean, I think one has to have a sense of of of, of sadness in looking at how people in this country are socialized to believe that, that our country always does good, is always does well. You know, from the time kids enter uh, elementary school uh, and they salute to the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, they're, they're being inculcated with a, a kind of a, a nationalism uh, and almost a religious belief uh, that's not really based in reality. Uh, and so you have a situation where uh, to, to truly understand what's going on, I think you need to understand the United States uh, as, as as the heartland of a global empire. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we yeah. still have our colonies actually out in the Pacific. Uh, countries like Japan are essentially client states. Uh, even Brzezinski, in, in writing his book, The Grand Chessboard, uh, describes U.S. allies as vassal states. Uh, so, so you know, it's difficult to, to move people from uh, kind of the illusion of, of, of what the United States is uh, to looking at it clearly. And, of course, that illusion is, then is used to cover a whole host of, of crimes uh, uh, and a class structure and tax structures in the rest of the United States, uh, which really limit our, our freedom and our ability to develop. Yeah. It, it, U.S. peace activists, in their great obscurity and shut out from the corporate media, often point to comparisons between U.S. military spending and war making and arms dealing and the rest of the world. Uh, but it seems like you really ought to be adding in NATO members, U.S. and NATO members together. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Give me give me a picture. I mean, it's the it's the vast bulk of arms dealing and military spending uh, by those nations directly, is it not? Yeah, it moves you, it moves you in the direction of about two-thirds of the world's military spending. Uh, you know, we, I think it's difficult. I mean, we go about our daily lives, and it's difficult to really quite imagine what, for example, the uh, terrifying presence of a nuclear-capable U.S. aircraft carrier uh, off your coast is. Uh, you know what it means when the United States is essentially monopolizing the militarization of space, and what what follows from that. Uh, so, so part of our challenge, I think, is to help people to understand, yeah, the, the systems which which drive essentially the the U.S. Uh, war machine and and, and reinforce an empire, uh, and to help them understand that you know with with more than half of U.S. discretionary spending for our tax dollars. Uh, going for for the military, uh, you know, we end up with with lead in our water, uh, schools without books, uh, a crumbling infrastructure. While while China and other countries build a much more modern 21st century infrastructure, uh, you know, and and I, I think one of the critical things we need to point to is that as we all know, the seas are rising. Uh, we are a coastal civilization. Our major cities are all uh, along along all along the water. Uh, as the seas rise, uh, this infrastructure, which is the foundation of our, we'll call it an American civilization, are increasingly uh, uh, threatened. Uh, it's going to take trillions of dollars to uh, both protect the infrastructure that we have uh, and to reverse climate change. Well, where is that money going to come from? It can only come from two places. One is by increasing taxes, and, and the other is by cutting U.S. military spending. So we need to understand that this this spending, this whole war machine, uh, independent of the question of whether we have an accidental nuclear war or, or miscalculation leads us to nuclear war, uh, the reality is that we do this military spending, we're decreasing our security on a daily basis. 
Yeah, it seems to me the obvious solution, given the counterproductive nature of this militarism and all of its downsides and lack of any upside, is to stop doing it. But inevitably you get this question, and we have about uh, four minutes left in which you can try to answer it, but you get this question, well, what should we do instead? And you've mentioned yeah. the idea of common security, but how do you answer that for people? Yeah, well, I, I, I go back to common security time and time again, uh, you know, which... which cuts against the, the power of the military-industrial complex in, in the Pentagon. Uh, but just to refresh people's memory, uh, back in, in, in the 1980s, uh, you know, we were absolutely the brink of, of nuclear war. I mean, it was people lived in daily fear uh, of an accident or, or of intentional nuclear war. Uh, and Olaf Palme, who was then the Prime Minister of Sweden, uh, brought together uh, leading figures from the Soviet Union, from Europe, from the United States, to try to figure out how we move back from that brink. And the concept they came up with was was common security. Uh, common security, uh, its foundation, as I said before, is to say, okay, what is it that I'm doing? Uh, you need to name your fears. What is it that you're doing that uh, that makes me nervous so I build more weapons that in turn, as I build these new weapons, make you more nervous, and we have a spiraling arms race and, and confrontations. And the idea is to name those fears, uh, and then through challenging diplomacy, it doesn't happen easily, but through challenging diplomacy, uh, to begin to negotiate uh, uh, resolution in ways that uh, address the fears of your uh, enemy arrival uh, in ways that don't undermine your, your security. Uh, and this is this is where we need to go. I mean, the structures of, of, of power in the United States are, are such that um, you know we're not going to have a revolution here anytime soon. Uh, but I think this is the way that we can kind of build toward a, a future uh, that provides uh, real security uh, for for our people. I mean, years ago, there was a Methodist minister from Chile who was one of the members of one of our committees. He had been a political prisoner under under Pinochet, uh, tortured. Uh, and uh, someone asked him, uh, you know, after, after Amnesty International had gotten him released, so when do you know if you have a military government? And his response was, well, look at your national budget. Uh, so so th this is the, the, the structure that we've got. These are the political challenges we have. And as a peace movement, I think we, we need to go beyond dealing with one crisis after the other and to be both thinking structurally of what we have here and to be putting forward alternatives like common security that will give people the confidence that there are alternatives. Indeed, it sounds like a wonderful idea to me. Uh, we've been speaking with Joseph Gerson. He is just off to uh, an anti-NATO summit uh, where the NATO summit will be held in Poland. Uh, and we will have a link up at talknationradio.org to his article uh, and to anything else that you send us, uh, Joseph, before uh, when you get back uh, okay, from, from Poland. Um, that would be what we have about... 60 seconds left. People in, in Poland supportive or, or opposed to, to NATO? Well, you know, the, the, or the conference and the demonstration uh, is being supported and in, in help, help in organizing it by a number of different Polish groups, which is not to say that there's a majority of, of, uh, of people in Poland uh, who are opposing NATO. I mean, they do have a historic memory of, uh, of, of of Russian occupation, they, they tend to forget that uh, Poland once was the imperial power over Ukraine, uh, and the extreme right-wing uh, government. Uh, so I have to say I'm looking forward to learning more about what's, what's happening within Poland itself, 
uh, you know, like with what's going on there with their extreme right-wing government is part of this uh, rise of, of forces that are, you know, in many ways um, analogous to what happened in the 1920s and 1930s in Europe and uh, yeah. another source of deep concern. Quite, quite disturbing. We look forward to hearing what you find out. Joseph Gerson, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. My pleasure, and uh, thank, keep up your good work. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.